Gospels to Lamentations chapter 2. Gustav Oler said this, wrote this on the prophetic office, the prophets of the Bible. On the whole, prophecy was designed to educate the nation to a perception of what kind of knowledge of the future could alone be a blessing to man. By opening its eyes to the holy government of God in history and to the aims of divine providence, that thus it, the nation of Israel, might learn to prepare for the coming judgments and walking in light of its own calling to salvation and of the great future which this involved might regard it as beneath its dignity to yield to the yearning for soothsaying. So he's saying that prophecy was designed to educate the nation of Israel on what kind of knowledge of the future could alone be a blessing to man. He's trying to instruct them how to walk in the blessing of God. And that often came, if you read the prophets, with calls to obedience to the law of God. Jeremiah, the prophet, had this kind of ministry, the author of the book of Lamentations. His ministry was largely in the city of Jerusalem around the time of the three Babylonian sieges that ended in the terrible capture, the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and which began the, I think quite definitively, began the exilic period of Israel's history when God dispersed all of his children, now the nation of Israel and Judah, which had been split into two, all of them were dispersed among the nations as punishment for their unfaithfulness to God and to his covenant with them. Jeremiah was speaking messages from God in the city of Jerusalem, pleading with the people to understand the destruction that their sin was causing them and the the punishment that God was sure to bring against them for it. Many people have called Jeremiah the weeping prophet because in the book that bears his name, the book of Jeremiah, book right before the book of Lamentations. He often laments the spiritual state of his fellow Jews, weeping over them, weeping over their sin and God's sure judgment. But then, of course, Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations, which is a book full of weeping. We studied this book in the last several months on Wednesday night prayer meetings Uh, just to take some lessons for prayer and for lamenting in prayer. And if you were with us, we'll we'll cover some of the similar things that we covered there. Pastor Joel actually recommended that I um, share some of from this study in Lamentations, since it was a, a bit of a smaller crowd on Wednesday nights that wouldn't have heard much of the series. But if you were with us, you would have learned as we studied that Lamentations really is a masterful piece of poetry, a kind of national literature for Israel, you could say, in that each of the, the chapters, each of these laments, each of these five laments, is an acrostic on the Hebrew alphabet. If you look at the verses, you'll see chapter 1 is 22 verses, chapter 2 is 22, chapter 3 is actually 66 verses, chapters 4 and 5 are also 22 Verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We have 26. There are 22 in the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse or each set of verses begins with the same letter. And so it's an acrostic, and purposely so. It's poetry. It's, it's literature. 
You could say that this book is the ABCs of sin's consequences. When we learn, you know, uh, I don't know what there are ABCs books about, but now I guess we have, you know, uh, changing a bike tire for dummies. It's not really the ABCs, just kind of the rudimentary principles of whatever it is. This is the ABCs of sin and its consequences for the people of Israel. And as such, it's a memorial for them, written while they were still enduring the consequences of their, really what God characterizes as spiritual prostitution and God's judgment on them for it. The Babylonians were coming, put a siege on the city in 605, didn't end up overthrowing it. 597, it happens again. 586, finally the fall, and then there's just devastation economically uh, there's you know there's a humanitarian crisis you could say people are being dragged off into places that they ne- they've never been worship is just done there's a remnant there they don't know what to do they're trying to decide are we going to stay here we don't have a temple we don't have any walls are we going to go to Egypt there's all of this upheaval in in the history of Israel they're enduring the consequences for their sin and this is when Jeremiah writes this Even as Jeremiah had preached for years, warning the people that God would judge them like this. Just as he promised, mind you, in the book of Deuteronomy. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, there are blessings to the law and curses to this covenant. And they didn't keep the law. So these are the curses coming against them, just like God said. This is God being faithful to his word. Once it actually did happen, what he had preached his whole life. Now, Jeremiah is wrestling with how to help the people make the connection that God had done this, and they needed to be right with him before anything meaningful was going to change. They still needed to deal with that sin, and they needed to do it in God's presence, on their knees, sorrowing over their sin and over its consequences. Again, in his presence, not anyone else's. So for that reason, Lamentations as a a kind of memorial to them. Something throughout their history that they would read on the the day that they would eventually celebrate, the day of the destruction of the temple as a reminder of that period. Lamentation serves to record for Israel God's profound punishment of their sin in order to point them to God's promised payment for their sin. Let me say that again. Lamentation serves to record for Israel God's profound punishment of their sin in order to point them to God's promised payment for their sin. So it's a memorial, something to remind them of this. It's a record of their suffering, the consequences of their sin that God brought against them. God's punishment for sin to remind them how bad it was, but then to point them to what God was doing in their future. Let's read Lamentations 2, starting in verse 11. I believe we'll consider a few big ideas about God and his people and his purpose in this book. And I chose these verses in particular because Jeremiah is mourning the state of the people in Jerusalem and uh, these verses, I, I believe, capture a number of key themes of the book. This is Jeremiah speaking. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? 
as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. And this is what he's wrestling with. How shall I admonish you? Or how shall I teach you as a prophet? What can, how can I teach you now? You haven't listened to me. What, what do I do next? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Here's an important question. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. This was one of their main problems. Their prophets were lying to them. All of these false prophets that were competing with Jeremiah were lying. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city which they, of which they said, the perfection of beauty and the joy, a joy to all the earth? All your enemies opened, have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we have waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might over your, of your adversaries. So Jeremiah is mourning the people greatly. He is mourning their destruction. He mourns the fate of their innocent ones. He mourns seemingly unable to help them, trying to figure out his role now. He mourns over those who had been leading them astray, not exposing their sin, affirming them in their sin. He mourns their infamy and their shame now, that God has rejected them in, as a spectacle to all the watching nations. And he mourns that God has had to act so severely against sin. And a number of these truths, I think, can be summarized from the whole book under the book's teaching about God and about the people of God in response to him as we try to draw a few lessons from this book. God, what do we learn about God from this book? Well, we learn that God did this. And in fact, God deserves credit for doing this. Does that sound strange to you? If you would, turn over to the first chapter, Lamentations 1, verse 5. This is Jeremiah speaking, kind of narrating what's going on with the people of Jerusalem and Judah. Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversaries. The Lord has caused her grief. It's abundantly clear at several points throughout the book, if you read it, that God did this. But what's also recorded in this book is that Israel is frequently having a hard time admitting this. They're not as willing to say this as Jeremiah is. They fix their eyes on those who did them wrong, the human agents. If you look down in verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore, she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. And she speaks to the Lord, but then where does she turn? See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. The enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. And Jeremiah continues to 
to narrate her situation. There's kind of a divided mind here in the people of Jerusalem. Maybe talking to the Lord, but still so upset about the fact that these people have turned against us. And they're proud, and they're getting away with it. They fix their eyes on the people who did them wrong, the human agents rather than God. They turn to friends rather than to God to complain and to find comfort. Down in verses 12 and 13. And these things need to change. Yes, of course, wicked men did wicked things. But God assures them that he will deal with those wicked people in time. And friends are often a help and a comfort. But when these are our focus, instead of finding comfort in God and repenting of sin to God, we're in trouble. We're not getting the picture. God is trying to arrest our attention so that we would turn from sin and turn to him. That's what's going on with the people of Israel. God did this. And God did this because of sin. He hates sin intensely. And he punishes it severely. Jeremiah marvels at this down in chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. We won't take the time to read down through verse 9, but if you read this, it is shocking. Some of the imagery that's put in here. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared. He has thrown down. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned in fierce anger. He has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He's consuming them. He's attacking them like an enemy. This is shocking imagery that God has turned against his people with such severity. And one of the main lessons of the book is that God hates sin. He hates it. He limits Israel's ability to defend itself. He strengthens their adversaries. He turns their allies against them. He himself opposes them and rejects them like an enemy. And this is what our sin is like to God and how it ought to be treated, how it will be treated in the end if we're not in Christ. This is how Christ was treated for our sin. And here he does this toward the people of Israel. He did it. He did it because of sin, and he does this in perfect justice and sovereignty to accomplish his purpose. If you look down in verse 17 of chapter 2, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from the days of old, and this is what he's done. He's done what he purposed. Like I mentioned, as he promised in the book of Deuteronomy. But we also learn about God that he is gracious even in discipline, freely offering mercy and hope. Words that you know well, maybe they're surprising to find in a book like Lamentations. If you look in chapter 3, verse 19, Jeremiah is praying. He's recorded his personal experience of feeling abandoned by God. And he's praying, saying, Lord, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. He remembers how terrible that was. He's asking God to remember how bad it is for him, how bad it is for the people of Israel right now. Verse 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He's recalling his experience as it relates now to Israel's current experience, what they're experiencing. 
What does he take hope in as he calls it to mind? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Did we sing that this morning? Great is thy faithfulness. Maybe I'm remembering a different song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. The wonderful truth that God is gracious even in discipline. So this is some of what we learn about God from this book. But also, we understand by the people of Israel how the people of God ought to respond to him when he's dealing with their sin. And first, the people of God certainly need to heed God's discipline, don't they? It's no guarantee that we learn our lesson from God's discipline. Israel wasn't getting the picture. If you read in the book of Jeremiah towards the end, chapter 38 through 40-something, something like that, after the city falls, the king leaves a remnant there, takes all the rest of them off to Babylon, and the remnant's trying to decide what to do, and they come to Jeremiah and say, go to God, ask God what we should do. Whatever God tells you, we're going to do it. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay in Jerusalem, and I want you to plant, and I'm going to make you successful here. I'm going to protect you. Whatever you do, don't go to Egypt. And Jeremiah says, okay, here's what God says. Don't go to Egypt. And the people say, you're lying. We're going to Egypt. They don't get it. Their hearts are hard. Certainly they're fearful. They've just seen the destruction of their home. But it's no guarantee that we get the picture that God wants us to turn from sin. They weren't heeding his discipline. And God said through Jeremiah when they decided to do this, don't go to Egypt. I'm going to follow you there. And I'm going to make sure my punishment chases you there. And he did because they wouldn't heed him. It takes an act of faith to respond to the discipline of God. And this is what Jeremiah is laboring for. How shall I comfort you? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? The people of God ought ought to heed heed the discipline of God. And connected with that, we ought to acknowledge the wrath of God. We won't take more time on that, but then as we acknowledge the wrath of God and are heeding his discipline, we ought to lament of sin to God. When we sin, we're, aren't we, we're doing a fundamentally self-oriented thing. But if you understand lament and if you read the lament psalms and what you realize is common among all of these is when you're lamenting and you're sorrowing in God's presence, you're actually doing a fundamentally God-oriented thing. Uh, some people prize authenticity and things like this and almost uh, kind of enshrine it as a virtue I don't know if that's so much the point, but God does desire us to be authentic. He doesn't expect us just to pretend like things aren't bad when we pray to him. He wants us to come to him, even with our sorrows and our sorrow over sin. That's a major point in Thomas Watson's book. I almost included that in tonight, some of the points from that book, The Doctrine of Repentance. He's, he's really trying to focus in on what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow that's only lamenting the consequences of sin versus godly sorrow that's lamenting the sin itself and the hatred that God has for it and the corruption it's brought upon me. That's what we do in lamenting in prayer. 
when we lament in a biblical way. We do a God-oriented thing. And that's good. That's an important distinction, an important change. To mourn what is truly lamentable and to speak to God while doing it. Because what happens in prayer is that God shapes our heart in his own image. To hate sin and to love righteousness. And it's also helpful to realize as we lament of sin to God that God's punishment isn't just designed for pain. If you look at chapter 3, verse 31, the letter here, the word that begins each of these verses is because, because, because. For the Lord will not reject forever. This is how to respond to God's discipline. Respond humbly. Receive it. Why? Because the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He does not afflict from his heart. God doesn't delight to bring pain to his children. That's what this is saying. He just wants you to turn from your sin. And part of what we learn when we lament of our sin, lament about it to God and sorrow over it with godly sorrow, we realize that God is doing this to correct us and to restore us and to teach us. And that includes training our emotions and our desires and our affections away from sin to God as we lament in prayer. So, the next way the people of God ought to respond to him is to turn from sin to God. When God disciplines, he does so for our good, Hebrews 12 says, so that we may share his, what? What's the word? Holiness. But that requires turning from sin and turning to Christ. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, I, I think really captures this picture of the whole, the whole shape of the Christian life. What you did at the beginning when you came to Christ is the same of what you do as what you do the rest of your life. You did not learn Christ this way, continuing in your sin, Paul is saying. But you learned him. You came to, to trust in Christ putting off the old man, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and putting on the new man. What we do as Christians every day, like Brother Dan was saying, is to put off the sinful habits that we had. When God opens our eyes to sin, we, we say, Lord, forgive me of that. Help me not to do that. And we go to Scripture and we ask the Lord to renew our thinking by His Spirit through the Word. And then we intentionally look for these actions and these attitudes of Christ-likeness to adopt by God's grace with his help. So finally, what is God's plan in punishing the sin of his people Israel? I said this at the beginning. I said that Lamentations records God's profound punishment of Israel's sin in order to point the people of Israel to God's promised payment for sin. So he did this in order to point them somewhere. What is God's plan in all of this? Certainly to execute justice toward his people. They deserved it. He had promised it. He did it to purge his people, to restore his people, to turn them from sin. If you would, turn over to Jeremiah, just back towards the beginning of your Bible, a few pages. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. 
What else is God doing in bringing this kind of punishment against his people and then recording it as such in this book of Lamentations? Why does he want them to have this memory? What is it supposed to indicate to them? Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 10. Fear not, God says, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of captivity. And Jacob will return and be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you, only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. This is what God is doing. This is right for him to do. He's purifying them. He will one day restore them. But then notice God's description of their circumstance. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. And your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder, and all who prey upon you I will give for prey, for I will restore you to health. Who will heal you, Jeremiah asked? What's the answer to this? God says, I will restore you to health. And God inflicted these wounds, incurable wounds, because their sin was so great. What is the next line in the verse? And I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, saying, it is Zion. No one cares for her. And then you may have a heading there, the restoration of Jacob, God is, uh, of Israel. God is... Uh, making these overtures towards Israel and saying, I will comfort you, I will heal you, I will restore your prosperity. We could read all the way down through the beginning of uh, chapter 31. If you look down in verse 15 of chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Speaking about Israel. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I turned back, this is Israel speaking, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated. 
because I bore the reproach of my youth. Look down at verse 21. God says, set up for yourselves road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these, your cities. And again, look down in verse 27. Where is all of this going? What is this hope that God keeps speaking of that he's restoring them to? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. One verse I failed to give attention to. Look back at verse 30, or chapter 30, verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. Chapter 31, verse 1, at that time. In these latter days when Israel will finally understand why God has smote them so severely, at that time, what does God say? I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. So what is God doing? Yes, he's restoring them, but also he's declaring his grace to all the nations that have watched this destruction. As he brings them back and restores them to himself, his grace is on display. He's giving his people hope, and he's intending to make a new covenant with them. A new covenant, of course, that we come to find out that we have the privilege of being a part of. But we've got to draw it together, draw it to a close. What are some of the lessons of the, Lam- the book of Lamentations? Lamentations teaches us how God thinks and feels and responds to sin. He responds with justice, just like it deserves. He punishes it. He disciplines his people who are in it. Lamentations teaches us how to feel and to respond to sin. We ought to hate it. We ought to mourn for it. We ought to lament sin in the world and sin in our hearts. Lamentations warns us about false comforters who affirm us in our sin. And anyone we might turn to when we're disciplined for sin, anyone other than God, first and foremost. Lamentations certainly teaches us how to deal with sin. Humbly admit it and then turn from it. Repent of sin. And Lamentations shows us who to turn to once we've sinned. That's to God, first and foremost. And I believe Lamentations, for the people of Israel and for us, anticipates the sweet restoration of fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. I prayed this evening because it was on my mind, on my heart, about how God is in the business of bringing strangers and aliens, people who are his enemies, those who are far off, he is in the business of bringing them near to him, setting them in a covenant relationship with him. For the people of Israel, that was the the covenant of the law. Here he's making a new covenant. It becomes clear in the New Testament. No one really expected this. God intended to include the Gentiles, everybody who wasn't a Jew, not by uh, as children of 
of the flesh because they're Jews, but children of the promise because they believe by grace through faith into Christ. This is what God does. He reconciles people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is a great, a great hope. And to close, I'd just like to read a a few verses from Romans chapter 11. I believe this really is the, the trajectory of a book like Lamentations. Why does God do this? Why is a book like this in the Bible where it's just gloom and doom? It's to teach us God's way with sin, God's feelings towards sin, God's disposition towards sin in us and in lost people. But then also to point us to hope, to point us to what he is doing as he deals with sin. When sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I say then, they, Israel, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, Paul says. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, the Jews, jealous. Now if their transgression, the sin of the people of Israel, is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's writing to Roman Christians, non-Jews, who are believers in God. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, his fellow Jews, he wants to make as much as he can out of his ministry to the Gentiles, so they will be provoked to jealousy that God has included them even as he has forsaken the Jews for their sin. Verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Look down in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, the Gentiles, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, the Jews are. But for the, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all." The wonderful mystery of the gospel is that God had made this covenant with the people of Israel and now he is including Gentiles in this by faith. And even though Israel has turned from God and they're hardened against God, when God reconciles them all with himself, what a wonderful abundance of blessings this will be. And this is how Paul concludes. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is reconciling people to himself as they turn from sin. Is there sin in your life that you need to turn from? That God is exposing if you're a child of God? Are you presuming on God's patience? If you're not a believer, is there sin that you need to turn from? Because you're under the wrath of God for it. I trust God will open our eyes to see that and give us grace and abounding grace as he has promised in his covenant. And he secured, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood that we participate in, that we remember, that we come together in fellowship around the good promise of the gospel and salvation in Jesus Christ by faith in his name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for including books like Lamentations that do show us your hatred for sin and how we ought to respond to you. I pray even as this is a reminder, this book is a reminder to the people of Israel about the consequences of their sin and the hope that you had promised them after they would turn to you from their sin. I pray that we too would be reminded of the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And that as you confront us over our sin, may we turn in godly sorrow and repent of it, but then hope in the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation to you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the time of worship that we've had today. Send us with your blessing, Lord. Help us to fellowship with you this week and with one another. We thank you for our church family and the opportunity to worship together. Help us to respond to the word with obedience. We pray it in Christ's name.